Hello, everyone, and welcome to Enablement Amplified. I'm your host, Fiona Simpson. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Jonathan Mahan. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Take just a second to introduce yourself. Yeah, Fiona, thanks so much for having me on. So name is Jonathan Mahan. I am a kind of a career sales professional. I've been doing this for good Lord over a decade now. And I recently, well, I said recently, a few years ago, transitioned away from being individual contributor to now actually running my own business. And in the business that I run, I help teams do sales trainings that feel a lot more like training for the Olympics or learning to play a musical instrument than actual sales trainings. And I think that tracks because the name of your company is in fact, the practice lab. And that's, and that's what we know musicians <laughs> and athletes do quite a lot of. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Jonathan. We do have kind of a funny connection. Your co-founder, Lawrence, is actually my co one of my college dorm mates. And so that's part of how we all got connected. So shout out to Lawrence. Hope things are good <laughs> in London, my dude. But let's get into the meat and potatoes here a little bit. What is the what if question that you brought for the show? Yes. So my question is, what if reps actually did what they were trained to do? We might not have a job as enablers, <laughs> which would be great. I mean, that's fine with me. But I, I love this question because we put so much energy in on the front end, right? And actually seeing the results can be a little tricky sometimes. So I'm sure we've all experienced this in the enablement world. But how did this come up for you? Or what kind of made you think this particular what if? <laughs> I can even tell you, like when I first started thinking this question, and which is ultimately what you know sent me down the path of starting the practice lab. But I actually experienced this problem as the rep on the other side, and then my co-founder experienced the problem as the trainer on the side that most of your listeners have been on, where I was the one attending the training. I was like taking detailed notes. I was eating it right up. I was the Hermione Granger of the class, right? I was just like <laughs> so into it. Love it. And yet. In the moment when I got on my calls and the pressure was on, and I had six different things in my mind and there was money on the line. It felt like everything that I had learned was just like locked away in some part of my brain I couldn't access. The only thing I could really access in those moments under pressure were my habits, my defaults, those most deeply dug grooves in my brain of, you know, how I've been selling for the last number of years. And it was just so frustrating for me because I knew what to do and I really wanted to do it. But dang, in the moment I couldn't pull it off. So, you know, I was realizing that I could never become the sales rep I wanted to be if like 5% or 2% of what I was learning was showing up in my calls, right? So that mm -hmm. you know, eventually sent me down the path that one day took me to found the practice lab. But uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of where that came from. It's been something that I've been wondering, even as a rep, what would happen if I was able to implement what I was being trained on? And again, you know, my co-founder experienced it as the trainer who was also wondering, gee, what would happen if people actually implemented what I taught them? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and I and I picking up on something, this might be an interesting place to start. You you mentioned that idea of like the grooves in our brain, which I know is something that you like to talk about. I've read a lot of your content on LinkedIn and I've listened to a lot of your the podcasts you've been on, but there's a lot of reasons why people don't do the things they're trained on, right? Tell us a little bit about like what the barriers are, like why do we default to that old you know, old way of doing things, the things that we've been doing for X number of years. Tell us a little bit about why sellers get stuck in the same selling motions, even when cognitively they might have new information, better information. Yeah. Yeah. Typically when I'm talking to someone who's, you know, frustrated because the sales reps aren't doing what they were trained to do, a really good question to ask to start off with is why aren't they, right? What is actually stopping them from executing and implementing a good selling today? 
And the, and the first gap that could be there is it could actually be like a knowledge and an understanding gap. It could actually be that your reps don't really know what good selling looks like. They don't really know the right way to handle different situations. They don't really have a good standard or example to turn to of, again, what good looks like. So it could actually be a knowledge and understanding thing, right? Mm -hmm. And if it's that problem, then solve it the way, you know, traditional sales training suggests you solve it, which is by teaching people and helping them understand what good looks like, giving them examples, having group discussions, maybe playing call recordings to help, help the points go home. But if it, has, and it is in fact a knowledge gap, go ahead, address it and close that knowledge gap. In my experience though, most sellers actually know what good selling looks like. Yeah, right? they kind, so, they kind I, of know who's doing <laughs> well and who's not. There's literally a le leaderboard like, this is what good looks like. Do what that yeah. guy's doing. <laughs> yeah, or even if you put two calls in front of them and said, which rep did a better job, right? Right. Generally speaking, if one rep was actually doing a great job, one rep was doing poorly, the reps could spot the difference. Because even if, you know, they've never been through formal sales training at your company, they've probably been trained by someone at the past and they probably know that asking good questions, that digging deep, that selling value is a great way to sell, right? So I would say in most teams, there's either no knowledge gap or the knowledge gap is pretty small. It's not the biggest thing that's holding them back, right? They may not know everything, but they know a lot more than they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one gap. The other possible gap is it could be a motivation gap where they actually don't want to do the thing they're being trained to do. This could be because they just don't have motivation across the board. They think they're good, maybe they're arrogant, or maybe they're just burnt out. But it could be an across the board, I don't want to be better. But more often than not, the motivation gap takes the form of, as a rep, yes, I know that I have a problem. I'm not great at X, Y, Z. And yes, I do in fact want to be better. But that thing you taught us today, I don't think that's gonna help. I don't mm. think if it's I did that, that would actually make me better. It's kind of an inertia issue almost, right? It's like, if what I'm doing is okay, and I don't really connect with this new thing that you're telling me, I'd rather stay in okay. Or like the yeah. things I know, I'd rather stay there than try this new thing that I'm suspicious of or that I don't really believe might work. Is that yeah. kind of on the right track? I think so. So sometimes it takes the form of reps actually saying, you're dead wrong, that would not help at all, that would make it worse. Or other times it's a more subtle form where it's like, yeah, maybe it'd work, but it'd be a hell of a lot of risk to change just for a maybe, right? Like, I'm mm -hmm. not going to change up just for a maybe this would help. I'm only going to change for a definitely this would help. So it can be a motivation gap. And again, a lot of different flavors of that, but uh, one way or another, it's because they don't really want to change. However, that's two. So there's a third one, and that's the one that I've, you know, spent my whole, you know, last few years pursuing. And that is a gap that exists when your reps actually do know what good selling looks like, when they actually really do want to do better, and they do want to implement those things they learned. And yet, in the moment, they still can't do it, right? That's the situation I was in that I described a few moments ago. Knowing what good looked like, very much wanting and trying my hardest to do it. But man, in the moment, under pressure, it's just not there, right? All that mm -hmm. knowledge isn't accessible to me. Or if I can like kind of remember the knowledge, I sure as hell can't figure out how to exactly apply it to the situation and exactly what question to ask in the situation. So in the end, I just kind of turn back to my defaults because in the brain, without going too deep in the neuroscience of it, it is very true <laughs> that things you do the most often are really the only things that are available in the moment, like when pressure's on and under moments of stress and emotion, right? Your brain really mm -hmm. does default to the most familiar things in those situations. Mm -hmm. So that's the skill gap. And in my experience on most teams, the skill gap is like the biggest gap because it's the one that really hasn't had a whole lot done to address it. You know, you got like commission plans in place to motivate reps to do a better job. You've mm -hmm. got traditional sales training, whether it's done internally or with an external trainer, but you got a lot of traditional sales training that can close knowledge gaps so that people really understand what good selling looks like. 
but my goodness, in the moment under pressure, it's hard to execute any of that stuff. So on most teams, the skill gap is one of the larger gaps that they're dealing with. And again, that's kind of what I, what I dove into uh, all those years ago when I was running this issue, because I noticed that other disciplines had ways of closing that skill gap, right? Yeah. Other disciplines have already solved for the challenge of how do we take the theory of what good looks like and turn it into something we can consistently execute even under pressure. Right. Like you think about sports, right? Like they watch the tape, they identify the problems, then they go out and they go to the field and they work on those specific problems or those specific gaps. Just yeah. to compare to one other in industry, if you will, if sports is its own industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sports is a great example. Or even, so I saw something, someone, a very senior voice enablement space who's had lots of experience, really knows their stuff, said something to the effect of like, I'm skeptical anytime I see someone claiming a training initiative will change behavior. And my experience, <laughs> that's typically not how it works. And they're probably right. But isn't that shocking? Imagine applying that to any other industry. Imagine you're in the military and you're like, you know, one of the colonels or sergeants right. putting together the boot camp program. And you're like, yeah, I'm skeptical that any of this behavior will actually change under pressure. Pretty sure these cadets are going to forget absolutely everything they learned the moment, you know, they're in a high-pressure situation. <laughs> no, no, no. Imagine you're a college basketball coach and you're like talking to your assistant coach and you're like, yeah, this is a, this is a pretty good practice program. I like it. Honestly, I'm pretty sure after the next two years, I think these kids are still going to be playing the same way they played in high school. But, you know, it's nice that we're at least doing this training stuff. I got to at least do it. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> no. No Olympic athlete, no professional musician, no professional comedian, no one out there is setting the bar with the expectation of, I don't think anything's actually going to change come performance time, but sure, we can do this stuff in practice. Like, no. So other disciplines of solved When you it, say it that right? way, it sounds so ridiculous. I'm like embarrassed for all of that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what? why is that the bar? Why is that the bar that you just do your training and expect nothing's going to change? And sure enough, it never does. And uh, and again, within the world of sales training, it actually makes sense that the bar is there because that actually is how it works, right? I've been trained many times by Sandler and Winning by Design and Medic and all these other companies. And it's never really had any kind of impact on the way I sold as a rep. And it never had any impact on any of my peers on the way they sold either. But yeah, it's like, why the heck is the bar so low? When other disciplines, again, have figured this out. So when it comes to closing skill gaps, these other disciplines are, as you pointed out, using practice, right? Practice is that bridge between mm -hmm. here's what I know in my head good looks like and here's what I can actually do. Because just knowing what to do and wanting to do it isn't enough to actually do it. No more than I can watch YouTube videos about how to do a backflip and suddenly do a backflip. I can't watch <laughs> 8 Mile and suddenly want to freestyle rap and then actually have the skill needed to freestyle rap, right? Like there's mental skills, there's physical skills, but all skills need to be grown separately and in different ways than the way knowledge is gained. So if your sales training programs is entirely focused on knowledge transference and making mm -hmm. sure the knowledge transference is good and making sure the knowledge transference is engaging and relevant and making sure the knowledge transference sticks and is remembered, that's good, but you're kind of missing the mark because you're just focused on knowledge transference. And again, having the skill to do something is different than knowing the theory behind it. So yeah. practice is whatever the discipline uses to do this. Well, and I know this is so cliche, but whatever. I grew up in the Malcolm Gladwell era. It just made, immediately my brain goes to 10,000 hours. Like you can know all of these things, but if you don't actually execute them and do them, you don't improve, you don't get better, you don't change the way that you operate without all those hours and hours and hours of practice. 
So talk to us a little bit about how you see practice. It's literally the name of your company. What does that look like? Because I know for a lot of people, when they think of practice, the first like bell that rings in their head, and if they're actually a seller, they probably have some PTSD about role play, right? And and we think of that as like the best kind of practice, although I would argue it's not. I know you would argue it's not. So talk to us a little bit about what practice really means and, and where role play for me fits into that or how we move above and beyond role play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good, really good question. Uh, role play is certainly one of the ingredients in the practice we do. It has a place, a part to play, uh, but it's not the only form of practice. And there's also a really big, big difference between really well done role play and kind of poorly done role play. And I think that 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 pattern stands true doesn't matter what kind of practice you're talking about, that not all practice is created equal. One of the things that the researchers we've been studying have, have really made a point to point out is that the repetitions are not actually the thing that grows the skill. Mm. So it's the 10,000 hours could be like 8,000 for someone or 4,000 for somebody else or 20,000 for somebody else. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's not the repetitions that are actually doing it. It's the other things that are happening embedded within the repetitions, if you structure it well, that are where the real skill happens. But the repetitions mm. themselves aren't what's doing it. Here's a good way to illustrate that. The average American who has an average commute time by the age of 65 has 10,000 hours logged behind the wheel. Therefore, every 65-year-old, according to 10,000 hour rule, should be an expert, masterful driver. Like they can jump in an F1 car and just go have a good time. <laughs> and of course, anyone who's ever driven in Florida in the wintertime knows that not every person over age 65 is an expert, masterful driver. It's because all those hours of repetition, repetition, repetition didn't have those things embedded in the repetition that actually mm. lead to skill growth, right? You can, you know, you can draw it now, it's just all over the place, right? I've, I've been tying my shoes for like 20 plus years now, but I'm no better than at it now than I was 10 years ago. All the repetitions didn't help me get any better. So the repetition isn't what grows the skill, it's the other things. And in some practice, those other elements are few and far between. In some practice, deliberate practice, which is what researchers have coined the kind of practice that professional you know, athletes do, Deliberate practice has those learning moments, those skill growth moments, just chock full. The whole thing big and end is just filled with these these moments. But mm. traditional role play, the way it's done on most sales teams, is kind of more that pure repetition where a little bit of skill is grown here and there accidentally almost. But there's not a whole lot of skill growth moments embedded into the way traditional role plays are done. And again, it's not the only form of practice too. There's other ways to do practice other than role play. Yeah, well, I can think of, I mean, go back to the car analogy. I can think of, you know, all the time I spent driving and I grew up in California, so there wasn't a lot of snow, but I learned a lot. My parents are from the Northeast about what you should do if you hit some ice or whatever. And it wasn't really until the first time I actually hit some ice and had a little bit of a fishtail that I figured it out really darn fast, right? So I can start to imagine what are some of the things that you don't get in role play or repetition because it's sort of soft it's sort of not designed to be challenging and you don't have those real world scenarios so understanding the difference between deliberate practice and the role play side is starting to really go can you see the gears turning in my head <laughs> yeah yeah well i can i can give i don't think i have time to go into detail but i can give the audience a quick primer on some of the sure. differences yeah so in traditional role plays the expectation is that you're going to show up as the rep and 
as a rep, my intention when I did role plays was always to do well and to show to my manager that I could do this and to show to my colleagues in my room that I was competent and smooth and confident and could do it. And I know when the value props and I've got the elevator yeah. pitch and I can regurgitate. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the role plays they do were even positioned as a certification, like prove to us you can do it and then we'll let you off the hook. But until you prove as you can do it, mm -hmm. right, you're, you're going to be, mm -hmm. you know, doing trainings and whatnot. So in that mo environment, your brain moves into performance mode. And in performance mode, your goal is simple. Do the very best I can already do with the skills I already have. Mm -hmm. And what performance mode tends to do is take whatever your current best is and make it more permanent by wrapping it in more repetitions. It'll mm -hmm. never actually make you better. It'll just make your current best more permanent. To get better, you have to be able to make new choices and grow new skills and try on new techniques. And in that process, your brain needs to be in a very different mode where you actually aren't worried about how you good at how good you do on this repetition. In fact, because you're trying something totally new, you're kind of expecting you might suck on this repetition. Your goal is to grow mm. your skill over time. That's when the brain is in improvement mode. In improvement mode, your brain can try things on for size, make mistakes, stumble and mess up, double back and make corrections, right? You can actually grow new skill, form new habits, and you know come out of that experience different than you went into it when your brain's in improvement mode. So the first mistake a lot of people make with their role plays is the expectation is to prove to me you can do it. And if that's expectation, it's a great assessment, but it's not a way to grow skill. Pe yeah. You could have people do that a hundred times and they'd never get any better. They would just become more permanently exactly as good as they already are. So the expectation has to be, we're here to mess up. We're here to make mistakes, push ourselves to the edge of our ability. I'm expecting everyone here is going to freeze, pause, bumble, make a mistake, right? Like that's the expectation. But then even in how it's structured, traditional role plays, it's like, hey, I'm going to hit you an objection. You give me a response and uh, do the best you can. And that's kind of how people drive. I'm going to get my car, drive to work, and hope everything goes well and you know, do the best <laughs> I can. To get better, that doesn't work, though. For deliberate practice to happen, you need to have very clear intentions going in and exactly what you're going to do differently, exactly what good luck's like, and exactly which piece of the performance you're going to focus your attention on, right? You don't get better at the whole dang thing at once. You get better one chunk at a time. So you got to know which chunk you're working on. And then again, you need to have very crystal clear guidance going into it, what good looks like, so that you can do your best to implement what good looks like. And again, choose that new path in your brain, choose that new approach that you've never tried before. And then, rather than just getting a little bit of feedback at the end and then, hey, next person's turn, for deliberate practice to happen, there needs to be this constant cycles and this alternation of trying it, getting one single piece of feedback, taking that feedback, implementing it immediately on your next attempt, seeing how it mm -hmm. felt to do it differently, then getting one more piece of feedback and then jumping right back in again and trying it again, implementing that piece of feedback so that you can actually feel the difference between the way you did it the first time and the way you did it the third time, right? That feeling of the difference when the brain tries it one way, then the brain tries it a different way and goes, oh yeah, that felt better. Mm -hmm. That's the moment skill has grown. So if you can pack in 10 different repetitions with nine bits of feedback in between, you'll grow way more skill than if you just have someone do it once mm. back at the end and then call it a day. So oh, that, again, we don't, yes. we can go too deep, but those are just some examples of the difference between but, role play and deliberate practice. Well, and I think it goes back to the sports thing for a moment. I, I played water polo growing up and I was a goalie and I literally had those conversations with my coach. Like, Hey, you did it this way. Do this one small tweak and do it again. And the intention, maybe I didn't have my positioning as good on that second repetition because I was focusing on my eye contact with my team or whatever it was that was in that feedback. And so the connection between the deliberate part, when you call it deliberate practice, that component, I feel like really speaks to 
how you get incrementally better as opposed to exactly what you just said, doing the same thing really well a lot of times, right? There, We can all draw the obvious distinction between those two things. Do something 10 times and get a 1% better every time or do something 100 times and stay almost the same every single go round. Yeah. So let's say that you've reimagined the way that you're doing your your enablement and your skills training and everything else, right? Skills training <laughs> and your deliberate practice. Is there a way to measure that? Or is there, I've seen a couple of your posts around like competencies and things like that. Is there a way that you then execute on the deliberate practice and find out how it's going? I'd say this is the, the most difficult part. And this may just be like a, an inherent trade-off where I think there may be, I think it may be the nature of reality that some of the less important things are easier to track and some of the more important things are harder than track, right? Um, yeah. Typically, you know, the, the, the real answer is before you do the training, watch half a dozen calls of your team, do the training, do the practice over time. And then after 60 days, 90 days, watch half a dozen calls and see if you can notice a difference, right? Even blind taste test them and like, what you know, mm -hmm. scramble them a little bit, have one of your colleagues watch the calls and see if they can guess which calls were before the training, which calls were after the training, even without knowing in advance, right? That would be the real test, but it's not, you know, necessarily the most scalable thing. It's, <laughs> it's quite anecdotal to watch, you know, these calls. So there are some things you can do, like Gong is great at tracking talk to listen ratio. So if your training involves better listening skills and asking better questions, then that could be a really easy to find metric to look at. You know, there are even other various different trackers in Gong that you can set up to help with this. But I will say that truthfully, this is this is kind of hard to measure, especially when you get into like the high value skills, right? If if what some of the high value skills you want to equip your team with is like the ability to manage their own emotions under stress, the ability to read the room, right? And read body <laughs> There's language. There's not a field for that in Salesforce, I don't think. <laughs> You're not going to be able to measure that. But of course, those are some of the most high value skills in selling, right? Thinking on your feet, reading the room, reading body language, picking up on subtle cues. Some of the highest value skills in selling, but really hard to track. So you might just have to accept, you know, that the, the standard of how effectively you could measure this might have to come down a little bit as you start pursuing these more important skills. Because mm -hmm. that's the thing, like really, you know, basic training might be able to equip people with like a single simple pitch that they're supposed to use. And that's really easy to measure in Gong. Did they use that pitch? But there's not a ton of value in that versus training your team to become more curious. That's mm -hmm. an immensely valuable thing. But again, how the hell are you going to track curiosity and gone, right? We, we aren't there yet. AI isn't quite there yet uh, to be able to track how curious your reps are. Um, you can track how many questions they ask, and that might be a decent right. amount. So there's some things you can do. But yeah, so is, is there part. some kind of like a framework or something around measuring those levels of competency? So one of the things that I, I've talked about on LinkedIn uh, in the past is there are three different levels of competency you could take your team to. Three different levels of competency that might be needed before behavior can actually change. So mm -hmm. the first layer of competency is kind of like the comprehension layer. So at the most basic level, this is when your reps actually just understand what good looks like and know what the job is and know what good selling is. You know, and they can take call out the good call versus the bad call. Yeah, they can find the good Cognitively, call. Cognitively, they get it. Yep. That's it. And then like the most advanced version of that is like where they actually remember and retain that knowledge and that understanding. And this is kind of the layer of competency. Most sales training is really good or at least pretty good at addressing, right? If you hire a Sandler winning by design, they're going to do a really good job of equipping your teams with level one competency, really understanding what their job is, understanding what good looks like, and hopefully remembering it so that 90 days later, they can still tell you what good selling looks like. 
But of course, there's a long gap between that and actually, you know, being able to, uh, <laughs> to to sell and to sell better. So the next layer of competency is around capability, and this is where you can actually do the things that you've been trained to do. So you know, the most basic level, this is kind of simple prompt-based competency, where it's like, hey, when this situation arises, do you know the talk track we talked about for the situation? Right? Simple mm -hmm. as that. Hey, we have a new pitch. Have you memorized the new pitch and can you deliver the new pitch when the time comes? Or, hey, here's a great way to like end a call to try to multi-thread and get other people on the line. When your calls come to a close, can you use this set of questions to get us there? Like, it's the ability piece. And again, mm -hmm. most basic form of ability is like in a conference room with your manager, when he feeds you a prompt, can you do the thing you were taught to do? The more advanced version of this level is, can you do it under pressure when there's money on the line, right? Big difference between yep. your manager giving you an objection that you respond to, and then the most valuable deal in your pipeline giving you an objection. Very different <laughs> situations. Definitely a different level of pressure, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's level two competency. The third level of competency, though, is where you don't need anyone telling you what to do. You can actually figure out in the moment what you should do. This is where rather than just doing single techniques, asking single questions, using single talk tracks, this is where you're able to like improvise in the moment different combinations of mm -hmm. techniques and things that you learned. This is where you have the situational awareness to actually know in any given moment, based on what's happening, based on what they're saying, based on their body language, I'm pretty sure this is a good time for a customer story, or I think this is a good time for uh, a mirror label, or I think this is a good time for a deep level question. Or I think this is a good time to do a summary, right? You can make those decisions in the moment about what technique to use when no one's telling you. And even have like the, I guess the term be the adaptive intelligence to be able to land in this very unpredictable conversation, have an idea in your mind of where it's going, but ultimately improvise as you go and adapt as you go to what you see in front of you to find a course and find a path there. All the while calling on the specific individual techniques and tools that you've learned at the appropriate moment because you really understand not just how to do the technique when you're told to you're actually able to make decisions about which technique is right for the moment because you understand the impact each technique has and the time when it might be appropriate so good analogy yeah. for this level one competency is like understanding music theory and how notes work and what makes a melody sound good and even how instruments work right level one competency is understanding music theory Level two competency is someone can hand you a trumpet and you can actually hit the right notes, right? You can, and you can you even can do read a, the sheet the sheet music maybe and it. play you the can, song that's been written for you. Yep. Yep. You can read the sheet music. You can play the notes. You can even do it under pressure when there's people watching. Or someone could wake you up at two a.m., hand you a trumpet, and you could still hit the right notes. You could still read the music and know which corresponding finger to use, etc. That's level two competency. Level three competency is playing in an improv jazz band. Mm. Where no oh, one's I like telling this you. Analogy. Yeah, no yeah. one's telling you what to do. You got to read the situation, read the moment, make split-second decisions about which techniques, which bars, which notes, which riffs to use based on this kind of you know gut feeling you have. That's the third level of competency, right? Or you know, another is a boxing analogy, right? Where level one is understanding how to throw a good punch. Level two is in a trainer with a heavy bag, being able to throw these various punches. But level three is actually being able to win a fight. Right. Again, very different skills, right? To be able to throw some good punches versus actually win a fight. So the problem with a lot of sales training, the first problem is most sales training just stops at level one, the knowledge piece, and that's as far as it takes you. But even when people do do some, you know, standard typical role plays, the furthest those will ever take you is into like that level two zone, right? Where when prompted, you can do the thing you were taught, right? Sales training, I've never experienced anything that tries to take people to that level three, right? Being mm. able to play in that improv jazz brand. 
And unfortunately, to do really good selling, you need that level, right? Totally. Of competency. I, now, there are I remember I had sales reps that like, we did some objection handling training and a couple weeks, months, whatever go by. And somebody literally came up to my desk and was like, oh my gosh, that objection that you trained us on actually came up in my phone call. And I did it the way that you said to do it. I think maybe kind of, right? Like they only just got like the one time that what they have been exposed to showed up in a real call and then they knew what to do. Like that was really only the level two. And then I thought, well, what did you do with all the other objections that you've heard of that we probably didn't cover in the training because we didn't we didn't think of them or they weren't in our top five or whatever. Like, yeah. what were you doing on all of those calls? Yeah, no, that's, that's the level thing. three. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the level three piece. So the the question I always encourage people to ask is when you're training something, ask yourself what level of competency do they need to actually change their behavior. If it's something like training people how to do better pre-call planning and pre-call research, level one is actually probably enough, right? Maybe like the very beginning of level two where like they actually do it, but that's it. There's no like doing it under pressure with money on the line because like you have time, right? If you're not sure how to do it, you can ask your manager, you can consult your notes. Like when you're outside of a call, you have the benefit of time. So mm -hmm. a lot of times like outside the call behaviors, level one's actually good enough because it's not under pressure. And again, if you forget what to do, go consult your notes, it's fine. In call behaviors, you need to at least be to level two. And sometimes level two is actually good enough. For example, if you teach someone a new cold call opener, as long as they can do it under pressure, they don't need this as situational awareness, adaptive intelligence. Just somebody says, hello, you got to spit out the opener. Simple as that. Right. Or like, how do you answer frequently asked questions? Like, how do you compare to the competition? You actually probably just need level two competency where it's like, when someone does this, ask a question, mm -hmm. I can respond with this, respond with the answer. Because it's obvious in that conversation what the appropriate thing to do is answer the damn question. There's no ambiguity there about, ooh, which technique should I use? Right. So some things level two is good enough. Usually level two is good enough for like the really predictable parts of the sales call, right? Where the buyer says, hey, what's your pricing like on the first call? And you want to give that- That's exactly the question that pops into my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Level two competency is fine. There's not a lot of ambiguity there. They asked you the price, so give them the answer that we practiced. Simple as that. But for a lot of things like, hey, when you're doing a demo, don't just make it like a feature dumping monologue. Draw them into the conversation. Get them talking more. Talk talk more about the value and the usage of what this is rather than just what it can do. Help them figure out the value of this problems. is. Yeah, type yeah. back to this problem. That's not a simple when this happens, do this. It's a very complex thing that need to do. Or discovery, right? Do deeper discovery. Let's do more consultative selling, more value-focused selling rather than just transactional. Let's, you know, dig below the surface to understand their pains better. That's not a simple prompt based like, hey, when this happens, do this. They need to have that situational awareness to know what to do. They need to be able to do different improvised combinations of techniques in the moment. Totally. They need the adaptive intelligence. So ask yourself when you're training them something, what level of competency do they need? And then there's different tools for the job based on what level you want to take them to, right? If you want to take them just to level one, then traditional tools will do the job. It's like traditional trainings, group discussions, videos you have them watch, assessments you have them do, maybe refresher sessions after. The traditional tools that most sales enabling people are used to is fine for level one. And many times that's all they need. So that's all you need to do is level one. If, however, you need to take people to level two, then you might use tools 
just a handful of tools that do this, but like asynchronous videos where you like mm -hmm. pitch, right? Like sales hood, mind tickle, lesson lay. There's a bunch of Bongo tools. has some too. Something like that. Yeah. So you can like record a video of yourself giving a pitch, submit it to your manager. That's a tool you mm -hmm. could use for level two competency. You could do role plays, right? I'm going to pretend to be the buyer. You pretend to be the seller. I'm going to feed you some prompts. You see if you can respond to them well. They're a great tool for level two. If you want to take people to the very top of level two where they can do it under pressure, that's when I recommend you design role plays that are actually harder than real life. <laughs> like going on a run with ankle weights, right? This right. is doing an exercise that it's intentionally more difficult or more, you know, more restrictive and you have less options available to you to make it harder. Then if you can do the hard version in a role play, you can probably do the, the easy version in real life. But those are all good tools for the job for level two competency. And again, you got to structure the role play well, like we talked about earlier. Not all role plays are created equal, but it is a good tool for the job. However, level three, role plays can only do a little bit in level three. Then mm -hmm. you start need to mm -hmm. calling in some other tools. The time when you could use role plays for level three is what I like to call challenge focused or challenge based role plays as compared to prompt based role plays, right? Mm. Prompt based role plays is more simple. I say this, what do you say in return? Challenge based role plays are a little different where you say, all right, I'm the buyer, or the seller. Your job as the seller is to get the conversation to this point. You figure out how to do it though. Mm. We spent, right? We've spent the last 10 weeks teaching you 10 different techniques and practicing 10 different individual techniques. Now Which your tools job, are going to, are you yeah. going to pull in your toolbox? That's it. Ooh, now like your that. job is to solve this challenge and figure out on the fly which tools to pull from. So that's the only time you use role play for uh, level three competencies when it's a challenge based role play. And I like, I like doing those, uh, but there's more. And even those have their limitations because all role plays, no matter how good they are, have the limitation. They're not real. Yes, yeah. yes. It's make-believe. It's made up. And there is no person on earth who can actually behave exactly the way a buyer is going to behave and responds right. exactly the way a buyer is going to respond and acts exactly the way a buyer is going to act, right? It's always an approximation. And if you're not careful, what can happen with role plays, especially if they're not structured well, is that you can end up with a sales team who are just masters at role play. It's kind of stuck on real calls, you know? <laughs> So there's other tools for the job other than role play. One of our favorite for getting people to this level three competency is what we call skills practice. This is where you take people outside the context of selling altogether and just focus on upgrading the hardware that is their brain, mm. giving their brain abilities they don't currently have so that when they step back in the context of selling, they do better. Some analogies for this. There's a lot of professional linebackers in the NFL who will train as boxers in the off season. Oh. And it's not because they want to throw a punch on the field. It's because when you train as a boxer, it strengthens the neural connections between your brain and your hand, giving you faster, more accurate hands. There you go. Uh, any, any fans of basketball will probably know that Kobe Bryant trained as a tap dancer. So his footwork would be better on really? the court. So he stepped, no outside the con yeah, he stepped outside the context of basketball, focused on fundamental skills and abilities, stepped back in the context of basketball and did much better. So salespeople oh, could do the same thing, oh. right? So for yeah. salespeople, some of those fundamental abilities that are independent of sales are things like listening, things like empathy and reading body language, things like curiosity, things like remaining calm under pressure, things like, you know, adapting on the fly to new information, right? Changing a plan that you had, you know, adjusting it as you need. Even just like the very art of taking that little itch of something you want to know and finding a way to spit it out in a really concise, clear question. That is a mental skill that you need to have. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just like a, a willpower thing where you can just will yourself to ask better questions. It's actually <laughs> a mental ability baked into the linguistic centers of the brain. 
So you can develop those foundational skills outside the context of selling in real life situations, no role plays. You put them in a real situation where they have to use their brain in that way, let them practice using their brain in that way, then they'll have the skill grown. So one example of this is you could have your whole sales team take an improv class, right? Nothing mm -hmm. to do with selling, but strengthens the brain. Or if you're wanting to focus on things like listening, curiosity, and reading body language, you could put your reps into like breakout rooms to do one-on-one -on -one practice like a role play, but there's no role playing. No one's pretending anything. You just have a real human to human conversation where you implement different listening techniques or empathy techniques or curiosity techniques that you were just taught in a real conversation. Because it's real, your brain is forced to treat it a little different than it would treat a role play and actually skill can be grown. Yeah, I've, had, then, I've had sellers before sit in on CS calls or like implementation calls where they can't say anything, right? They have nothing to contribute, but they have to sit there and listen and find out what the problems are. We used to send them to, ooh, we know like maybe this customer that you sold is having a problem in implementation. You need to go sit on this call in real time and you can't say anything, but you need to come back to us with what the issue is for listening purposes, right? putting them in a very real situation that they're probably physically uncomfortable with, right? And their brain is going through, what did I do wrong? How could we fix this? What do I know about our product or our services or our whatever that could be the right way to get around this? That was an interesting experiment for sure. Yeah. Actually, uh, it's actually a good segue to the, the final form of practice that we found can be really effective. So in a role play, What's really happening on the brain's level, right, for the person who's practicing is a practice mm -hmm. partner is feeding them all sorts of information, feeding them cues, feeding them prompts, feeding them mm -hmm. stimuli to respond to. The brain of the practicer needs to take in everything they're hearing from their practice partner, think about it, listen to it, make observations about it, make conclusions and assumptions about what they're hearing. Then it has to think through its whole range of options of what it could do next, and then it has to choose a thing to say, right? Choose a question to ask, right? So in a role play, that's what's happening in a rep's brain. The problem is all of those prompts, that input, those stimuli that are being fed are make-believe. They're made up, they're fake, mm -hmm. they're pretend. They aren't exactly what a rep would experience on a real call. So that's the limitation. So we found a way to actually use recordings of real sales calls to be what feeds your reps that information, those prompts, mm. those stimuli, those cues for your rep's brain to then take in that information, process it, make assumptions, make you know observations, think through your options, make a choice, spit out a question. You can actually use the recording of a real call to feed those prompts to your rep. So now it is perfectly realistic. It's actually real. There's nothing more realistic than a right. real call. Yeah. And they get that practice. Hearing, listening, observing, noticing, making choices, thinking through options, spitting out questions. So all those fundamental underlying brain abilities of noticing things, right, that they didn't used to notice or of very quickly making decisions about where to take the conversation next, you can actually replicate that in a rep's brain using a recording of a real call mm. versus a role play partner. So again, right. it deals it deals with the realistic issue and it, it takes people into that level three where they're actually able to read a situation, make choices and you know play improv jazz, so to speak, <laughs> using call recordings. So again, role plays are great when done well, they're a powerful tool, but there's other forms of practice too outside of role play that yeah, can take I... you to that third level of competency. Yeah. So we took a very deep dive, which I love because I know I've, I've listened to you a lot. I've read a lot of your stuff on LinkedIn and I know you you are all the way deep in this, the, the folds of the brain and all that good stuff. But let's take it back up to the high level for just a moment as we kind of wind things down. So what would happen 
if reps actually did the things that they were trained to do. What would you see out there in the landscape of sellers if they really got there, got to that level three competency? I think the reputation of salespeople would change because all sellers, most sellers have actually been trained on how to do great selling. Only some of them can pull it off. And most people mm -hmm. listening to this have probably experienced a great seller. And think about your interaction with that amazing salesperson. And then think of the stereotypes of salespeople. What? That doesn't fit at all. That's ridiculous. Right. It's preposterous. So if, if reps were actually doing what they were taught, I think that, yeah, the reputation of the sales world would change quite a bit because when the selling's done well, it really is a service, a service that a buyer should be hungry for. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. you're helping people to think through their situation. You're helping people to get clarity. You're helping people to make informed decisions. Like when the sales profession has gotten to the point where across the board, the standards have been raised and most salespeople are really implementing the kind of good selling they've been trained on. All those, you know, stereotypes of salespeople will go away. And I do totally. think we'll get into a world where buyers will be talking and be like, yeah, we should probably do something here. Somebody find me a salesperson. I need some help thinking through this. Like, yeah. how cool would that be when we that get to that? Amazing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jonathan, this has been fascinating. I love that we wrapped our brains around this and I love all the stuff that you guys are doing at the practice lab. So it, this is Enablement Amplified. We do like to take just a moment to amplify a little bit of the work that you're doing and then also amplify somebody else or some other people out there in the world of let's just call it go to market that are doing some cool stuff but but start off with just kind of giving us what you're up to what you need help with anything that we as a community can do to support what you guys are doing at the practice lab or, or what jonathan is doing just every day thanks so much fiona so we're actually a fairly young business and we're in this place that i think every young business is, is in where we know what we have is really dang good. And everyone who's ever tried it with us agrees, this is really dang good. But we actually still need some help getting the word out and getting in front of people. The truth is there mm -hmm. is a ton of enablers and sales teams today who are banging their head against the wall struggling with this lack of behavior change. And the solution is probably what I just shared of the three levels of competency, the practice, the different forms of practice. What I just shared is probably the solution to their problem that would take that headache away, that would unlock growth on their team and allow their team to achieve so much more than they could otherwise. We just need help getting in front of those people. So Absolutely. if you're an enabler and you have issues with behavior change on your team and training is not sticking, we'd love to talk to you about the possibility of helping you. But also, if you know people in the space who are struggling with the same thing, send them this podcast episode. Amplify Fiona, amplify me, help <laughs> everybody out. Share this podcast. Absolutely. Um, and we'll have all the links to the business, to you, to Lawrence, all in the show notes and on all our posts on social. So you, you all will have no problem finding Jonathan and Lawrence in the practice lab. For sure, for sure. And then uh, someone else to amplify, right? Yeah, absolutely. I love to pay it forward. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. So they're not enabled specifically, but Kevin Dorsey is like my absolute favorite voice on LinkedIn. He usually goes by KD. Most people already know him, but on the chance you don't know Kevin Dorsey yet, go check out his posts, go bell his page. The stuff he shares is just pure gold, whether it's he's talking about leadership and culture and team building, or whether he's talking specifically about sales and sales techniques. Kevin Dorsey is one of my favorite, favorite voices on LinkedIn. So definitely, definitely go follow him. Love it. And I'll absolutely link Kevin in the show notes as well. Well, Jonathan, this has been fantastic. I am so excited to share all of this because I agree with you. We've, we've gotten stuck in a rut when it comes to to training and to to getting our reps to actually do what we hope that they would do. So thank you for sharing this with all of our audience and I appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Fiona. It was fun. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and comment on your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe to our email list at www.enablementamplified.com to get every new episode delivered right to your inbox. As always, thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Fiona Simpson. Take care.